This morning we're going to deal with a new subject in our series of Sunday morning messages. We have just completed three Sundays on the wisdom of God. We've seen the wisdom of God in creation, the wisdom of God in human government, and the wisdom of God in redemption. Now we're going to take another one of God's attributes, and that involves what has just been sung about, and that is his power. And we're going to take four Sundays, the Lord willing, in dealing with this particular subject, and we'll be going right back and covering uh, the subject in this hour, or this fashion. Today we'll be speaking on the power of God in general. Next Sunday, the power of God in creation, then the power of God in human government, and then the power of God in redemption, again. Because the power of God and the wisdom of God go hand in hand. You can't separate them, or else one limits the other. So this will be the 28th message today in our study on the whole counsel of God, going through the Bible and covering every doctrine, every teaching which is contained therein. We invite your attention first to Psalm chapter 62 and verse 11. Psalm chapter 62 and verse 11 for one text. Then if you'd like to, be turning to Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17. And then Psalm chapter 115 and verse 3. The subject today will be the power of God in general, just dealing with it in a general term. In Psalm chapter 62 and verse 11, David says, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Now notice that term, that power belongeth unto God. In Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17, we read these words. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. There is nothing too hard for thee. Power is attributed unto God, and this power is specialized or set forth as being available or capable of creating heaven and earth, and that there is nothing too hard or impossible with God. Now in Psalm chapter 115, and beginning in verse 1, we'll read this chapter here. Psalm chapter 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. And that ought to be one of your texts. If you don't have a verse of Scripture for your testimony of life, that ought to be one. I'll read it again. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Why should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their own throat. Now, here's a description of a false god in contrast with a true god. Now, notice verse 8. They that make them, that is, these false gods, are like unto them, 
so is everyone that trusteth in them. In other words, what is set forth here is that a false god is one that has a mouth, but he can't speak, has eyes, but he can't see, has ears, but he can't hear, has a nose, but he can't smell, has hands, but he can't handle, has feet, but he can't walk, and neither can he speak through his mouth. In other words, here is a god which is limited in what he would desire to do. But now notice in contrast to the true god, but our God is in the heavens. Well, what's the difference between that, Paul, or David? He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Now, there's the difference between a false God, an idol, and the one true God of heaven and earth. This one true God of heaven and earth has power and authority to do what he pleases or wills to have come to pass. Now, we want to look into this subject this morning and the power of God, and by doing so in way of introduction, we find that as we read through the Bible that approximately 70 times in the Bible the word Almighty God is used, the word Almighty, meaning that if power belongs unto God, he is almighty, he is omnipotent. Now, omnipotent power is available or is capable of accomplishing all that it sets out to do. God is the Almighty God. We want to define now God's power. Power is sometimes used to signify authority. That is, that the police have certain power over us. That is, they have a certain authority over man in that the laws govern man. So power is sometimes defined as authority. Power is sometimes defined or signified as strength. He has a lot of power in his arm or in his muscle. You may, though, have strength without authority. You may be the king of a country, and you may have authority over that country. But some other country may come in and invade you and overthrow your kingdom. Thereby you have authority, but you have no strength. Now, that is uh, sometimes one can have authority but have no strength. You may also have strength without authority, like Absalom did when David had the strength and the authority, but Absalom had no authority to overthrow the kingdom, but he took the strength and he did it. He overthrew the kingdom of another. But, Pastor, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of God having power? And we define it as this. The word that is translated power in the Bible is translated strength. It is not just that God has authority over his creation, but that he has the strength or the ability to act and to carry out his will in his creation. He is not a limited deity that has authority, but he has no power. That is, no ability to carry out his power. Then we define it as this, and listen carefully, because it's important that we establish this before that we begin proving it from the Bible. God's power, then, is his ability to carry out or to bring to pass whatever his infinite wisdom has designed and whatever the infinite purity of his will has resolved to have done. 
Now, I may want to do something, but if I don't have the strength, the ability to do it, then I can't bring it to pass. We talked about the last three Sunday mornings about God's wisdom in creation, providence, and redemption. Now, but I may be wise, but if I do not have the ability to carry out that which my wisdom designs, I might as well quit before I ever get started. So God's strength or his power is defined in the Bible as the ability to carry out what he pleases to carry out. Now notice, in contrast to the heathen gods, our God is in the heavens. Well, what's that mean? He hath done, accomplished, whatsoever he hath pleased. Now this power of God is divided into two areas. And it is important that this be understood in reading your Bible and when you read about the power of God. God's power is set forth in the Bible in two areas. First, his absolute power, and then his ordinate power, or that which he has ordered shall be. His absolute power makes it possible for all things to be. That is, when the Bible speaks, with God nothing shall be impossible. God has absolute power over all of his creation. But he does not use absolute power. Now, let me give you an illustration of it. God created the heavens and the earth. But he had absolute power to have created a million heavens and a million earths. But he did not use absolute power, but he used an ordinate power, that which he used, or that which he willed to bring forth. So we have two things then. God is capable of doing all things consistent with his own nature, but he does not do all things, only that which his wisdom has ordered him to do. Now, let's give you some examples of this. I hope you have your Bibles handy. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53 and see an example of how that God could use all of his power, or that is, his absolute power, to bring to pass anything which he, he wanted to, but that he does not that he uses that same power to bring to pass that which he has willed or ordained to bring to pass. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, we have Jesus, God's Son, dying on the cross. Now here he's dying by the hands of sinful men. The power of men are putting Christ to death on the cross. And Jesus says these words, Thinkest not that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. How many of you here today, boys and girls and young people, men and women, how many of you believe that Jesus could have called for the angels and they would have come and they'd have had the power to release him from the hands of men? You believe that? Okay. Now, there's God's absolute power. It's there available. Well, why did he not use it? Look in the next verse. Jesus said, but how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be? You see that? That is, God's ordained power was that he had revealed in Scripture that God's, his own Son was going to die on the cross. 
Now, if he uses his absolute power, then he contradicts his ordained power. So all things are possible. Twelve legions of angels are sitting by to exhibit God's absolute power, but he only uses that power which he has ordained. And Jesus said, here it is, I am ordained to die. Thereby I am fulfilling that power which God has set for me. Let's give you another example. In the same chapter, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face. This is Jesus praying in the garden. And prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here Jesus prays and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup or this death pass from me. Now, was it possible for God then to let Christ remove himself from this death? His absolute power could have brought that to pass. But he prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What you have ordained in my life, that is what I desire to have come to pass. So God has an absolute power in that he can do all things. With God shall all things be possible. But he only brings to pass that which his wisdom has designed and his pure will has resolved shall come to pass. And in that he has revealed in his holy word. So that what we go by then is not God's absolute power, but his revealed power, that which he has revealed unto us. Now, I want us to stop here for a moment and get an instruction from this teaching thus far. It is sinful presumption to call upon God's absolute power than what he is authorized by his own revealed will. I want to illustrate that. We have teaching today that... Uh, Whatever you want, you just call on God and uh, it'll come to pass. Now, we acknowledge that God's absolute power could bring that to pass, don't we? But, beloved, it is sinful presumption to ask God to do that which he has not authorized in his word or his revealed will to do. We have a lot of uh, teaching going around where you just claim whatever you want, and God, if you have faith enough, well, you'll get it. That is, tap into this absolute power, and you can have whatever you want. Now, Jesus didn't use God's power that way. He didn't call the angels to come down, but he said, I'm here to carry out the will of God. And he didn't escape his death on the cross by asking God to remove that which he was praying for there in the garden. He prayed for the will of God to be done. I read a book one time that said, well, if you just have faith, you can move mountains. Well, Jesus said that. He rebuked his disciples for not having faith or trust in his power. But I want to ask you something, ladies and gentlemen. How many mountains have you seen moved? Hmm? Have you ever heard of anybody moving a single mountain? That is, just speaking and it was moved? Well, of course you don't. You've never heard of that. Well, I wonder why. 
Because God put the mountains where he wanted them to. And if he wants them move, he'll move them. In other words, his will put that mountain right there. Now, why would he move it over here on the other side of the river? Oh, you say, couldn't he do that? He certainly could. But he has not revealed that he wants any particular mountains moved. Therefore, therefore when we pray, we pray in accordance with what God has revealed. And it is sinful presumption to claim and say, now God's going to do this if he has not revealed that he will do that, that which is ordained in his word. Let me give you an illustration of this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. Now here we have the three Hebrew children. Daniel chapter 17, they've been thrown into, or about ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, if there's ever a time to pray, I think it'd be now, wouldn't you? <laughs> Getting ready to be thrown right into the furnace. If there's ever a time to pray for God to use his absolute power, it's right now. But now notice, they did not tell the king, now God is going to come down and he's going to save us from this. But I want you to know what they testified to the king. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. See, there's their trust in his absolute power. And from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And this made Nebuchadnezzar real mad, so he threw him in the furnace. Now notice what they said. Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to spare us from your hands. But if he doesn't, nevertheless, we're not going to bow down and serve you. They did not just stand there and command God to use that which he had not revealed that he would spare them. But they were trusting in that, that if it be the will of God, the God which made the fire can also protect them from the heat that is in the fire. I think that we can make a more practical application of that in, with this way. And I, I hope that this generation of preachers are in lesson now. We've had a lot of famous preachers around the land that are now in bankruptcy courts because they were trusting in God's absolute power that if they went out and built huge buildings, then God would pay the bills on them. And they said, if you'll just have faith, you go out and build a million-dollar church building, and God will see that the bills are paid. Now, wait just a minute. God has nowhere said in his word that he would see that the bills are paid. We're t trying to touch in to what is possible. But God has said, you sit down and count the cost before you set out in building a building. And therefore, that which has been revealed and ordained, you go by those principles. That man might see this. That rather than trying to say, well, just because God's able to do everything, all I have to do is believe it, then everything comes to pass. Jesus didn't go that way, beloved. And there are, I could name you, about six well-known preachers across the land right now. Some of them have the IRS agents in their church right here this morning, and they're taking up the offering, and they're taking it down to the bank and garnishing the church's wages and paying the bills 
because these men went out and built huge buildings and now they can't pay for them, but they did it trusting in God. They said God was going to do it. Now see, what did they do? They misused and sinfully presumed upon God's absolute power when they should have gone by what he had revealed, he said that he would do. Even Jesus himself, when he was in the, when he was tempted, and the devil said, turn these stones into bread, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And even when Satan took him from the temple and he said, you cast yourself down and the Bible says, the angels will spare you. He says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Certainly could not he have turned the stones into bread? Would not God have sent the angels and spared Jesus if he jumped off there? But Jesus said, I'm not going to tempt and presume upon that which God has not ordered. So see, we go by what God has ordered, not what he is capable of doing. So be very careful that when the next time that we set out on an endeavor by faith, that God gives us the faith and that faith is rooted into what he has revealed in his word, or else you may find yourself out here on a limb somewhere trying to pay off a million dollars indebtedness with a hundred dollar a week income. And that happens, beloved. That happens. Good people, sincere people, but because they misunderstood the significance between God's ordained power and his absolute power. Now, God's power is necessary to support all of his other attributes. If God did not have power, he would not be able to do or fulfill all of his other attributes which we've been studying about. If God did not have the strength to do what he intended to do, then what about his mercy? His mercy would be reduced to a feeble pity. You ever pity somebody? When somebody, uh, let's say you're a friend of yours, is... Uh, their house burns down, and you're having to stand by there. I say, Brother Powell, could I use you for an example? Okay, your house is burning down. Now, there goes your life. And I come over there, and the flames are going up, and I put my arms around you, and I say, I'm so sorry, Dick. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Now, all I can give you is pity. I can't prevent your house from burning down. You see that? Now, pity comforts a little, but what you need is somebody to keep the house from burning down, you see? In other words, God is not just a pitiful God. If God did not have power, then his mercy would just be a pity. He'd have to stand by and watch all of what's taking place take place as a bystander with no ability to go out and do something. If God did not have any power, then his justice would become a mocked scarecrow. How many of you still use scarecrows in your garden? Anybody? I came across one. I remember Jess back here does. He made one just like himself, and there hadn't been any crows down there for five years. <laughs> what are scarecrows for? They will keep put a fear in the birds. But what happens when the birds learn that there's no power in those? They go out there and sit right on the scarecrow. 
And beloved, if God has no power, then his justice becomes just a scarecrow and man no longer fears God. And is that not what has happened today in our land, throughout the world? There is the fear of God. God says, I will punish the wicked. But if God has no power to punish the wicked, then he's just like a scarecrow standing there blowing in the wind and people mocking him. And because that we have a limited God preached in our land today, that's why that sin and evil is running so rapid, is that God is nothing more but just a scarecrow. He's warning, but he can't do a thing about it. If God does not have all power, then his promises become like an empty sound. I give you my word and I don't perform it, then my word becomes empty if I don't have the ability to carry out that which I promise. And when God gives all of his promises in the Bible, if he doesn't have a power to carry them out, then they're just a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. They're nothing. So God's power is absolutely necessary to support all of his other attributes. Now, in bringing this thought to a conclusion for our purpose this morning, we want to point out that the power of God versus idolatry. That is, that the fact that God is the true God is what prevents idolatry, when you see that. If God is not God... That is, if he does not have the power to do what all that he is designed to do, then he's not God. It's just that simple. God is not God if he cannot perform all that he has pleased to do. Now, what is an idolater? Pastor Gables, we hear that term in the Bible, I read about it, but what is an idolater? An idolater, ladies and gentlemen, is someone who worships a limited God. A God which has hands, but he can't feel anything. A God which has eyes and ears, but that's all. He's limited. He can can only go so far, far, but no further. You say, well, can you prove that from the Bible? Yes, I think I can. Let's go to the Bible and see if an idolater is one which worships a limited God. All right, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Well, why is Jesus worthy to receive this? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4.11. Why is God worthy of being praised? Because of his power in creating all things. And why is an idol not worthy to be worshipped? Because it can create nothing. It has no power to do anything. And so the first step that leads into idolatry is when an individual, a community, a church, or a country, or a world, begins by saying that God is a limited God. That's the first step that leads you away from the Bible and the truth of God, and you'll end up in idolatry if you keep on down that road. Now, let's show show this in Isaiah chapter 45. Remember, our God is in the heavens. He's different from the idols. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. In Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 12, we have these words. 
I have created the earth and man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. Now, what's the significance of that? God says, here's what I've done. I have created in power. Now, what's the significance? Hear the heathen. They shall be ashamed and all confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion that are makers of idols. Now, you see the correlation? God says, I have demonstrated my power. The false idols shall be confused in that they have no power to do what they would desire to have done. Now, this is the mark of idol worshippers. Individuals, you go over across the waters today, you'll find people worshipping God. You'll find all types of gods. And they will attribute that their God is powerful. But there's one thing about all their gods. He is not able to do that which he pleases to have done. He's limited in some areas or some aspects. Isaiah has shown us this. Now let's go to Jeremiah chapter 10. And Jeremiah will show us that in contrast to idolatry, God is the one true God. Jeremiah 10 verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting King. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall you say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, and maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, and his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, and the work of heirs. In the time of their visitation they shall perish. Now listen in a summary. The portion of Jacob is not like unto them. Well, that is, the God of Jacob is not like these gods. Why isn't he? For he is the former of all things. That is, the true God is the one that has formed all things. The false God is one who cannot form and do as he pleases. So, therefore, idolatry is associated with the denial of the absolute power of God to bring to pass that which his wisdom has designed and his will has executed or resolved. Now, in one more text in the book of Romans, chapter 1, and verse 20. Romans, chapter 1, and verse 20. Paul is forever warning the churches that he would go into when he would say, Beloved, flee from idols. Flee from idols. Or do you mean that the apostle actually went into an assembly of Christians and thereby he saw a little image of Buddha sitting on their pulpit and he would say, Get rid of that idol? Do you think that's what he was talking about? No, he's not talking about some graven image. But there's always the danger even in God's people, of forming in their mind an image of God which limits him 
and makes him less than that which he actually is, and thereby we become idolaters when we do that. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, here is the first step of, to becoming an idolater. And it would not surprise me this morning if we don't have some idolaters right here in our midst. Why, well, say, Pastor, I don't see any idols. Uh, I don't have any idols in my house. Now, wait just a minute. Let's see what a true idolater is. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. You're able to look up and you're able to see that an omnipotent power had to bring all this to pass. Being understood by the things that are made. You look around, you see the effect. There must have been a power to have produced this, this earth. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. What do you have to do to be an idolater, Pastor Gables? All you have to do to be an idolater is to say that God cannot do what he wants to do. That's it. That's it. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleases. And anything less than that is an idol. Anything less is a God which has eyes that he can't see. Is a God which has ears but he can't hear. Is a God which has hands but he can't feel anything. Has feet but he can't move. And when we begin by attributing a limited conception of God we're already on our way down into idolatry. And if we have a limited God, we'll have a limited worship of God. And you find that the ones that have the highest conception of God, it is out of their hearts that the highest peons of praise come, because thou alone art worthy, O Lord. Now, you want to see where it leads to? Let's look here in the United States of America. We now have officially in several denominations that are now ordaining homosexuals in the pulpit. You say, how on earth could this ever come to pass? You read what the result of going into idolatry here in Romans chapter 1 is. And see where these people end up that deny the aspect of a sovereign God. Look in uh, verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. He said, all right, you don't want me, you just go ahead and do what you want to. And brother, when God withdraws his restraining grace, here's what comes out of the human heart. And now then the churches in America are saying, here, this is all right, this is all right. How could this ever happen? We have churches preaching the gospel, we have churches saying we believe in Jesus, and yet within those same groups we have the most immoral, degrading sins that you'll ever come across. What's the reason? Because we have a lot of idolaters. If we really believe that God is all-powerful in justice, 
that we know he will bring to pass those which break his law. He will judge them. And if we believe that God is this all-powerful God, then we'll be humbled down before it. But if we have a little old God who's sitting up there in a rocking chair with a long beard, crying his eyes out and just saying, Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I could do something. And my friend, if we have a conception of a God like that, we're on our way to idolatry and our churches are on the same way and our country will end up right where Sodom and Gomorrah ended up. We must attribute to God His right to be God. And we must allow Him in that conception that He is able to bring to pass that which He pleases to bring to pass. Now then, how can we apply this then in the way of your needs and my needs. If you're here this morning as a sinner and you've never believed in Jesus Christ and you've tried to, you've, you've tried to believe in Christ, you've gone to Sunday school and church, you've read your Sunday school books, uh, you've gone to youth camps and you've gone here and there and you've been baptized, you've made a profession of faith and all these things and yet you know deep down in your heart that there's no settled peace between you and the true God. And you say, well, Pastor, how on earth, what can I do? I've tried everything. Listen, why don't you go to the all-powerful God and ask Him to change your heart and enable you to see the duties that's in Christ? Hmm? Why don't you seek Him? If you don't have the power in and of yourself to change your own heart, and have that peace, then why don't you go to the omnipotent God and sue Him for mercy and say, O oh God, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Come where I am, down here in the pit. I can't even crawl up there to meet you halfway. Come down here into the pit and change my heart and make me like one of your own. Come and do that which I cannot do. My friend, when you reach that place, you're right close to the kingdom of God. When you earnestly desire that more than anything in life, you're through with your religion, you're through with your church anity, you're through with doing this and that and the other, then put aside all those idols and look to the omnipotent God who has but to speak and say that there be light and there is light. Look unto Him. Look unto the pit from which you are digged, not into the own strength of your own faith, but look unto the one who has but to speak, and there is faith formed in the sinner's heart. You say, Pastor, I don't understand that. I don't either. The songwriter didn't understand it either. He said, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, or how, believing in His Word, He created faith within. I don't know how God does that. You don't either. But my friend, it must be that way. God must create faith to enable us to believe in Jesus Christ. And if your religion hasn't given you satisfaction, it may be because you've been worshiping an idol. Go to Him now. Go to Him now. The omnipotent God, He alone can give that peace which comes from Him. Let's stand.